Welcome to Book Chat. I'm Carl Helliker, and today joining us is Dr. Matthew Kerbel, professor of political science at Villanova University, and the author of this intriguing titled book, If It Bleeds, It Leads, An Anatomy of Television News. I forgot the subtitle, sorry. Uh, welcome, Matt. Thank you, Carl. It's good to be here. Uh, it's, it's great to have you here. And uh, one thing I found that was very interesting about your book, you sort of have like, you uh, have two professional hats. You actually have your, your academic field at Villanova, but you've had uh, num numerous experiences in the uh, media world. Can you tell us about some of those experiences? Uh, yeah, I think it's fair to say that in my, uh, in my first career, I worked in radio and television and for various reasons uh, decided that it really wasn't the course I wanted to pursue. But I had an interesting experience because I worked um, first in radio in some of the smallest markets you can imagine. I worked in a market so small that the, the, um, the morning drive team, the two uh, disc jockeys who were on in the morning actually um, pretended to um, make the noise of a traffic helicopter when they were giving the traffic report. This was a city that was way too small to have a traffic helicopter. They barely had a highway. Uh, and then I worked for a while in New York City, which is on the opposite end of the spectrum. And I worked in television for public broadcasting, but that was also for a, um, a, a small show, a relatively local show. Our, our, um, we went on at 11.30 at night, and I think our our key demographic was uh, people who had dozed off. <laughs> we um, we followed Dick Cavett, and I don't know if any of your viewers would remember Dick Cavett. I, I remember it. You remember Dick Cavett, and, and, and some people who remember Dick Cavett mm -hmm. might remember that once upon a time he did a primetime network evening news program, I'm sorry, an evening entertainment program. Mm -hmm. um, by the time uh, I was working in public broadcasting, uh, Cavett was also in public broadcasting, and he had gone in a different direction, so uh, he would spend a half hour interviewing cultural anthropologists while living rooms darkened across Brooklyn, <laughs> and, and then we'd come on the air. Fun, fun stuff. Uh, I love the title of your book, If It Bleeds, It Leads. It kind of sums up the whole book, but what exactly do you mean for our audience? What, what, what does that title mean? It's a TV news term, uh, something that you'd hear in newsrooms, and it means that if a story is graphic, if it's violent, then it's going to lead the newscast. And uh, a corollary to that would be um, you need the pictures. If you don't have pictures of something that's graphic and violent, then it might as well not have happened because you won't find it anywhere in the news report. Um, you describe the book as a real-time journey through two and a half hours of news. It was an intriguing format. Can you please explain that to our viewers? And why did you choose this format to convey your oh, information? Sure, Carl. This is um, The idea for this book uh, goes back to something I wrote previously um, about the relationship between television news reporting and um, the cynicism that so many people feel about politics uh, and the detachment people feel about politics, um, in particular because the message is so cynical. And at the, at the end of that book, uh, it's a previous book, um, I wanted to offer something uh, positive for the reader, something, a solution to this dilemma. And the, the problem was the best solution I could think of was, you know, we really would be well served by thinking about the news differently and understanding that a lot of what goes on, uh, what counts for news, isn't really news at all. It's just entertainment designed to keep us watching. But um, there was nothing out there uh, that really made that point, so I decided to write it. First approach I took was a serious approach. I, I, I approached the topic straight. I had eight different points that I thought people needed to know. And uh, you know, if they understood them, they, they would become more intelligent news viewers. Uh, and I sent it off to an editor I had worked with before. Uh, and he said to me, Matt, you know, the last thing people want to do 
when they come home after a hard day at work and they put their feet up is to pick up a book that tells them they're not watching television properly. You can't do that. <laughs> so um, I thought that was a, a good point. And I went back to um, my approach and I decided to take it uh, from a different direction. And I said, well, you know what? Why don't I take some of the tricks that news people use to try to hook you into believing that something is newsworthy when it really isn't and let them speak for themselves. So I decided to select a week's worth of programming from local news from four markets across the country, from national news, that's the major networks, and also from uh, the Jerry Springer show because as I say in the book, those three different venues have a lot more in common than we normally think. And actually take excerpts from stories and let those excerpts speak for themselves. And I intersperse my own commentary to try to point out the, um, the absurdity of, uh, of what counts as news. But um, very often, uh, the selections themselves uh, were so absurd uh, that um, we had a new problem. Uh, my editor at that point said, people are going to think you're making this stuff up, when in fact, everything in the book is real. All of the text in the book is real. And I, I present it as if you're watching television. It covers a two and a half hour period instead of a table of contents. The book starts with a rundown, which is a list of stories like you'd find if you were behind the scenes in a TV news show. And it follows with real copy. I put, I put all of the real copy in italics and I have a disclaimer mm -hmm. at the front of the book. Everything in here is real. Uh, people still come up to me having read the book and they say, well, you made that stuff up, didn't you? And <laughs> I have to tell them, no, I, I, I didn't. Yeah, it's, it's a fun book to read because of that reason, just uh, seeing, uh, getting a different perspective of how ridiculous these things are that, that are being said when they're put in the context of what you're trying to achieve. I, I think of it as a dark comedy <laughs> with a serious purpose. <laughs> Very good. Speaking of a dark comedy, uh, one of your quotes is, never let the facts get in the way of a good story. That's what right. You say, what makes a good news story, at least the, the, as defined by the rules of TV news. Well, the, the, the fundamental premise that I try to get across in the book is that television is a pretend medium, that it's about putting on a show. And news reports, news programming, uh, really uh, follows that rule. News, news coverage is no different than entertainment coverage or entertainment uh, uh, programming in that sense. So if something's going to make it on the news, it has to hold your interest. That means it has to be graphic, it has to be entertaining, it has to be interesting. Like I said a little earlier, you have to have pictures. I, I can give you an example that I use in the book. There's a story that ran as a lead item on the local news in Phoenix. And it was a story about uh, what appeared to be a riot. In fact, if you looked at the story with the sound off, you would see kids running away from police in riot gear and there's a great deal of motion. There's police helicopters, someone's getting arrested. It really looks like a riot, but it wasn't a riot. And if you listen to the storyline, you find that in fact, it's, um, it, was a, it was described as a small disturbance. Uh, and then the police reacted. Uh, and twice during the course of telling the story, the reporter says it probably looked worse than it was. Those are, <laughs> those are magical words on television because if it looked worse than it was and you had the pictures, that's, if it bleeds, it leads. That's lead news. Uh, Matt, how would you compare current TV news with, say, the, the news from the last generation before the uh, explosion of cable news stations? Well, you know, uh, television has always been an entertainment medium, so in that respect, nothing's changed. But like you say, there's been an explosion of options now on television, with cable television. So uh, you not only have uh, news sources that didn't exist, say, a generation ago, you also have news sources that are 
uh, operating 24 hours a day. It started with CNN and headline news, they have Fox News and CNBC and MSNBC. There are all these different options. And the dilemma is um, what people in the business call feeding the beast. You have to constantly find content, find interesting things to put in those programs. And if you go back a generation ago, that wasn't the case. It's also the case that because you have so much competition, uh, you, you not only have to find things to fill that enormous gaping need for news information, but you also have to make it entertaining all the time. And that's one of the reasons why uh, if you turn on uh, any number of those news sources, you'll find a lot more heat being generated than light mm -hmm. because heat keeps people involved. By the way, the remote control has contributed to this dilemma because there was a time when um, maybe some of uh, uh, your viewers will remember the phrase, don't touch that dial, where uh, television programs were always advertised by saying, wait, there's something else coming up. Well, you think about the imagery, don't touch that dial. You actually had to get off the sofa, walk up to the television, and turn a dial to change the channel. People are much less likely to do that than they are to pick up a remote control and just click like that. And since you can do that at any time, that, that means that the entire program has to captivate you, has to keep you engaged. So it's an entirely different competitive environment. It's an entirely different world than what it was, say, in the 1960s and 1970s. I'll give away my age. I remember that was the theme that Andy Williams used to use on his show. Don't, Don't touch, touch that, that dial. dial. Right. Exactly. Right. Um, what is the four-second brevity clause, and why doesn't it apply to weather reports? <laughs> okay, well, anything, <laughs> anything of value and importance can be said in four seconds. And the reason I put that in the book is because that's about the average length of a sound bite on television news. Mm -hmm. So anything that takes more than four seconds to say isn't going to be included in a typical news story. And certainly if you start to talk for an interminably long time, like 10 or 15 seconds, mm -hmm. you have absolutely no chance of being included in the news whatsoever. Now the weather is different. The weather is the only exception to that rule because um, have you noticed on local news that they do the weather almost constantly? Uh, if you turn on a uh, late afternoon, early evening local news report, you might see a weather report four times over the course of an hour. And if you think about it, weather is one of the few things you can talk about in four seconds. You know, it's, it's raining today or it's sunny today. Uh, there's really not a lot more that you need to say, but people love the weather. People are fascinated with the weather. They will tune in to local news to find out about the weather. So of course, local news producers know that and they're going to draw out the weather as much as they possibly can. Weather is a, just an interesting phenomenon, Carl. It's an entirely different phenomenon than anything else that you're going to find on, on local news. It is uh, fascinating. I, I noticed too, I, I guess weather's become sort of a, a victim of the, the uh, sensationalism that we find in news too. I, I notice anytime there's a threat of anything, it's always presented in apocalyptic terms that this is going to be the, the flood of the century, the blizzard of the century, and we're still at work the next day. Uh, it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. And, uh, and, and you know, uh, even, even when it doesn't look to be all that bad, it's still built that way because the only kind of really interesting weather is dangerous weather. I actually talked about three different types right. of weather in the book. And, you know, good weather, uh, that's the worst kind because that's just <laughs> not interesting. It's not interesting to say that it's going to be sunny and mild for the next five days. So, um, you know, when, when local news producers have to contend with that kind of a problem, um, what they'll do is they'll, they'll, they'll tell you about weather in other places where it's, uh, things aren't as nice. Uh, of course, you're probably never going to go there. Uh, but that's why you'll see weather people pointing to the map and saying, well, now uh, let's take a look at what's happening over here in West Virginia. Well, we're not in West Virginia. So if you think about it, it really doesn't need to be on the news at all. But 
if they just told you that things were going to be pleasant where you are, that just wouldn't be interesting. Uh, but now, if you have real dangerous weather, if you have the, the possibility of a, of a, of a, of a hurricane or, or a tornado, certainly, like you say, it's always the storm of the century. And that's exactly the kind of thing that news people live for. But the problem is, from a news standpoint, you just don't get conditions like that very often. So what you've got to do is take the conditions that are in the middle between those two, which are just really annoying, and you have to hype those. So annoying weather would be things like slush. You know, nobody likes slush, but you can deal with it. Uh, but you're guaranteed to hear a weather person say, if you don't have to travel, make sure you stay off the roads. Of course, we all know that's the time to drive because you know, nobody's out. Right. Uh, also, too, I did, I did like your comments about weather people in the, in, in the book. Uh, it seems like they, there are two types. Why don't you tell us about the different types of weather, weather people? The creative and the scientific types. Yes. They're, they're, that's mm -hmm. right, sure. Uh, some, some weather people are actually meteorologists, or, uh, mm -hmm. or if they're not meteorologists, you know, they're optometrists, and they can use the word right. entitled doctor yeah. uh, in front of their name. And um, these people, um, this group makes a claim to um, expertise by virtue of their title and their background. And um, uh, the distinguishing characteristic is they actually know what isobars are, uh, which is you know, a nice ability to have. But the most important thing you can do, of course, is communicate that that annoying slushy weather is really potentially quite dangerous. So uh, you have to be able to do that. Uh, and then there are the ones who, are, uh, who, who don't actually have a meteorological background. Uh, they uh, were probably... Um, that could be any kind of background. You know, they could have been, you know, um, they could have been in retail sales. It doesn't really matter, uh, as long as again they're able to communicate that message. Of course, you know, uh, local news operations love to have meteorologists or anybody with the title because they can they can advertise that. You know, we have Doctor So and So with the weather. It, it sounds sounds very impressive. It, it does indeed. Uh, we also have this phenomenon you talked about sweep time. What, what is sweep time and how does that affect news reporting? Well, uh, the rating sweeps are the periods uh, when um, the audience size is measured. And they happen, the most important sweeps on television occur three times a year and they last for a month. And during those periods, um, things are just more dangerous, or at least they appear to be more dangerous on television. <laughs> they don't, they're, they're actually, they actually aren't more dangerous in reality. Um, but, it, but this is the time when uh, everybody's job is on the line. This is everybody from the anchor that you see to the news director, everybody, because the way the rating sweeps work, the higher the ratings, the more the station or the network can charge for advertising because higher ratings mean a larger audience and therefore a greater reach for advertisers. So uh, there's a tremendous amount of pressure during these periods of time. And in order to meet that pressure, you want to build the biggest audience possible. So if things are if things are bad the other months of the year during a rating sweeps month, they're they're awful. And this is a time when you know kids kids who hang out at the mall nine other months of the year during a ratings month, a sweeps month, you know they suddenly start to maraud in packs. <laughs> uh, Matt, <clears throat> before we left, we uh, we got the uh, inside info on weather people. Let's talk about the sportscasters now. You say. Uh, a quote, sportscasters can be different because they are different. Well, they are different. Well, how are they different? They play a completely <laughs> different role. Sportscasters are the only people on the news who are allowed to have a rooting interest in something. So, uh, you know, you turn on local news in Philadelphia and the sportscasters are going to root for the Phillies. And they assume that's not going to offend anybody. Even if you're not a Phillies fan, it doesn't really matter because everybody expects that they're going to be able to do that. But, you know, you would never expect a sportscaster to go on and say, or I should say a newscaster to go on and say, maybe an anchor to say, well, it looks like George Bush is in a rough stretch right now. What do you think he can do to turn it around? You just, you can't do that. 
uh, you know, because um, people are going to be offended by that. So sportscasters are just different. And they have different kinds of names, too. You know, they're, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, anchor people are called Guy. Sportscasters are called Skippy. They're just different. <laughs> okay. uh, I, I noticed they always carry, have pens in their hands, too. It's very important to have a pen in your hand. Okay, fine. That's true. You're not writing anything. Uh, right. But that's okay. Okay, fine. Well, one, one step at a time. That's right. Uh, another interesting comment you uh, make, and I, I was intrigued by this, is you say national reporters are obligated to cover their own lives before they cover anyone else. Oh, that's right. Even the person they are supposed to be covering. Why is this so, and how is this done? Well, Carl, what could be more interesting than your own life? Um, you got me there. There you that's go, true. right? Yeah. Exactly. And so very often reporters will find news in their own experience because after all they're TV stars just like the people they're covering. I have an example in here uh, that comes out of the 2000 presidential campaign. It's actually a story that ran on the national news in 1999 when uh, George W. Bush was just beginning to emerge as a serious contender for the Republican presidential nomination. There was an event um, at which you actually had more television cameras than, um, than real people. And uh, a story that ran on ABC News about that event uh, was, was filed from the perspective of how uh, Bush is here today. He's not really saying anything. He's not making any news. And in fact, really nothing is happening. But what's fascinating about all of this is there are so many reporters covering him. And it's a roughly two-minute piece that tells you about the experience of those reporters covering the candidate. So it's a great example of how reporters will find news in their own experience, arguably, if he didn't hold a press conference, he didn't say anything newsworthy, and the reporter tells you that, you could make a case that there's no reason to file the story at all. But when you find news in your own experience, there's the rationale. Interesting. Uh, you talk about the fear and outrage news segments. Which one is used more frequently and why? Oh, I think uh, news reports play both to fear and outrage. I think the key difference between the two of them is fear is an emotional reaction and outrage is... Uh, more intellectual reaction, uh, but you see both of them. Um, fear stories, for instance, are when are, are, are the kind of stories where uh, news reports will take a phenomenon that uh, naturally has fear potential and then hype it so that people are really drawn into the story. I, I use an example of a story that ran on one of the major networks about auto theft. And if you watch the story, uh, it plays on the fear that your car is going to be stolen. And in fact, if you watch, if you, if you really don't pay attention to the story, but you just watch the pictures, uh, you, it sort of leaves you with the impression that um, you really better double lock your car because it can be taken at any minute. But if, if you look at it closely, they actually use a statistic that shows that uh, auto theft has been declining. And if you think about it, if auto theft is declining, um, that is newsworthy in its own right, but you see that doesn't scare anybody. So the way that you bring people in if you're trying to construct a story like that is to quickly gloss over the statistic, and then there's another statistic in there that says one-third of the cars that are stolen are never returned. Now if you think about that, two-thirds of the cars that are stolen are returned. Are returned. Exactly. So it's the way it's presented, and it's presented in the way that generates the most visceral reaction in, in the viewer. Now, outrage stories are a little bit different. Outrage stories are the kind of stories that you look at and you'd say, I can't believe that that's going on. And they're typically stories about government agencies or officials that are doing things that appear outrageous. I have an example also from the network news of a story that plays on outrage because of cost overruns at the Department of Energy. 
uh, apparently the Department of Energy was put on notice that they need to cut back on their travel costs. And the story again plays with statistics in order to maximize the degree of outrage. Mm -hmm. The actual overrun was uh, about $23 million on a budget of uh, 200 and uh, about $248 million, which of course is referred to by the reporter as a quarter of a billion. That just sounds bigger. <laughs> and that's the figure that's used, a quarter of a billion. But if you listen carefully to the story, the overrun isn't a quarter of a billion dollars. It seems like it is. The, the overrun is $28 million. Not a small number in any respect, but obviously a quarter of a billion dollars just buys a whole lot more outrage. And that's why they use the figure. Interesting. Let's take another step in the evolutionary process of, of the media. And uh, let me ask you, what has been the Internet's impact on political campaigns? It's emerging. And uh, it's a really interesting question because uh, it's something I'm personally interested in looking at. At this point, I would say we are uh, in a period of transition. For a number of years, the Internet had a limited effect on uh, the way people related to politics, and I think it had a limited effect on uh, more established media as well. And that was simply because internet access was not yet widespread, and uh, even people who had it were um, using it in a way that um, it was cautious. People weren't used to purchasing things online, or they were concerned that their private data wasn't secure. So what you saw was um, some internet usage, but say from a campaign standpoint, very little in the way of candidates using websites other than to uh, supplement other forms of advertising. As we move closer to the 2004 presidential cycle, we're starting to see some indications of uh, internet use um, in a, an entirely different way. Uh, the internet reaching people uh, who want to organize on behalf of candidates. Um, people are much more comfortable giving money on the internet, and we see the emergence of what we call web logs, or blogs for short, it's kind of an ugly phrase, mm -hmm. but web logs as a possible competitor to mainstream media. Uh, the interesting thing about a web log is just about anybody can have one. You can, you can be a gatekeeper, I can be a gatekeeper by having a website, publishing your thoughts on anything at all, including politics, and um, making uh, your thoughts available for other people to then comment on. And I think this is a, it's a fascinating development, and it'll be interesting to see how it emerges. And you were telling me before the program, actually, this is your next, uh, this was actually, you said your, your fourth book, I believe. This is my fourth book, that's right. And you were talking about your new area of research is just in this direction of studying the, uh, the impact of the web and the internet on uh, politics. That's right. Fascinating. Just to, in uh, summary here, as we're just about ready to sign off, but what what recommendations can you make for make for making the news more newsworthy? Oh, you know, I I, I wish I could. Um, that really uh, brings me back to the dilemma that I had previously, uh, which is it's so difficult to come up with a reasonable solution to the problem of news content. Now, it's possible that in an emerging news environment where you have new media on the internet, weblogs, it is possible that that will actually change the way mainstream reporters go about their business, either by utilizing weblogs as a source or possibly uh, by viewing them as a form of competition as their audience 
share starts to decline. And we certainly are seeing a deterioration in the number of people who use uh, television news, uh, not unlike the way we saw a deterioration in the way people use newspapers as television emerged as a new medium. So um, there's certainly that, but in terms of uh, in terms of the problem of uh, you know how can how can we rethink the way news is presented, I've never been able to come up with an answer to that, which is why I wrote If It Bleeds It Leads because. Uh, the best I could do is to offer people who are interested a, a way of looking you know, behind the cameras and behind the wires mm -hmm. and getting a sense of what really goes into uh, the production of a news report uh, so that uh, hopefully, my real hope, is that people who choose to read the book will never look at television news in quite the same way. Well, thank you, Matt, and thank you for joining us today on Book Chat. This has been uh, fascinating, and I know I'm certainly not going to be looking at news in the same way I've looked at in the past. Well, thank, thank you, you for much. joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. And this is Book Chat, and I'm Carl Hallecker. We'll see you soon.